welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 171st episode, our guest is David Scheimer. David Scheimer is a fellow at Yale University. He's reported for the New York Times from five countries and has written about election security for the New Yorker and foreign affairs. His new book, Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference, was published June 30th. And now on to the show. Sure, my name's David Scheimer. I'm an associate fellow of Yale University and I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Oxford. And I just published a book entitled Rigged America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. The purpose of which is to restore history to the subject of covert operations to interfere in elections to show how the Soviet Union, the CIA, and now Putin's Russia have been targeting elections all over the world to analyze 2016 as part of that story, and then to chart out a path forward for all democracies based on that history rather than just acting as though everything occurring in our current moment is confined to our current moment, when in fact what is happening to our political system is is just the latest episode in a very old story. Yes, and I'm glad that you started the story kind of where you did, because uh, when I first heard of the premise of your book, I was like, okay, well, I'm very interested in the Russian portion of this, of course, because that's what's happening now. But uh, lest we forget all the American incursions into other countries' elections uh, legally and illegally uh, over the years, not not to equate the two or say one makes the other okay, but but you know, we, it, it's good to have the full full picture that you know maybe we kind of lose sight of in, in the current moment. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and and the purpose of the book isn't to draw any sort of equivalency, as you said between Russian and American operations to interfere in elections, not least because I don't actually believe that there is an equivalency for reasons that we could discuss if you'd like, but rather because um, analyzing both American and Soviet operations gives us more data, more information in, in establishing patterns around these sorts of operations that therefore enable us to analyze our current moment in a more informed way, whereas if we only study one side or the other, we're not getting the full story and, and we're not getting um, as much sort of context and instruction as we can in seeking to identify patterns of behavior that we can use to anticipate what Russia will do next. So uh, so let's take it back to the to the beginning, because your book kind of goes through about 100 years or more of of this uh, type of thing. And um, just maybe if you could just kind of give people an introduction to what are the early examples of election interference, uh, you know, that you that you talk about that America was involved in initially. Sure. I mean, maybe maybe the most helpful thing would be if I just go through and brief the history of 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 these operations and broken down in into three phases. The, the first phase was in the interwar period beginning in 1919 when the Soviet Union first started interfering in elections all over the world under the leadership of Vladimir Lenin through an international organization called the Communist International. It, this involved spreading money and propaganda to communist parties all over the world. These operations were rather limited in their scope and by all me- measurements were extremely ineffective, but the idea was there um, to, to try to spread an ideology by interfering in foreign elections. 
A, a pivot point happens after the Second World War when Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union interferes aggressively in elections across Eastern Europe with very familiar tactics, rigging vote counts, manipulating voter databases, spreading millions of pieces of propaganda in order to influence the minds of voters in countries like Poland, East Germany, and Hungary. And those elections then went to the communist side and were widely deemed illegitimate. But at that moment was when the second phase of this history began, because Harry Truman then said, OK, we we are going to respond in kind. If the Soviet Union is going to be interfering in elections, we will, too. So he authorized the CIA for the first time formally to interfere in covert action with the express purpose of interfering in an election. And, and that was the Italian election in 1948 when the CIA interfered very aggressively in order to support the centrist Christian Democrats. The centrist the Christian Democrats ended up winning the election, after which during the Cold War, the CIA and the KGB really went toe to toe in elections all over the world, one in support of centrist candidates for the most part, the other in the support in support of leftist coalitions and communist candidates. Yes. Uh, well, you, you covered a lot that I wanted to talk about there. And uh, I was very unfamiliar with the whole Italy part of, of your story there. And uh, I didn't realize that there was this big letter writing campaign uh, for people to write back home to their Italian relatives. And maybe you could just explain the, the inner workings of that, because I wasn't I wasn't really familiar with that whole episode. Yeah. And I, I think this episode has really been forgotten as history, which is part of the problem. Because if we forget our history, then we're flying blind in the present. Because what happened in Italy, it can be used to understand what's happening today. For example, what did the CIA do in the Italian election? They sought to influence Italian voters. Part of what they did in seeking to do so was funding the campaign they liked so that campaign could reach and influence more people more effectively and, and more precisely. They helped organize voter registration drives and get out the vote initiatives. but they also orchestrated more sprawling propaganda uh, um, programs, one of which, as you mentioned, was what was known as the, the letter writing campaign. And what that was, was the CIA um, organized or came up with the idea and reinforced the idea, as I reveal in my book, which had never which which I got the CIA's internal historian to confirm to me on the record. Um, well, can, can we can I stop you right there? Because I actually was going to ask you about that. That is a fascinating job title. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a crazy it's a crazy job. Right. Where, yeah. No, this guy <laughs> spends his life um, or his career writing classified histories of Amazing. covert operations that are only accessible to the U.S. intelligence community until they're declassified. So it's in some ways a historian's dream because you have access to all the sources. <laughs> But in some ways, it's less the dream because you're not actually able to share your findings exactly. against the broader world. Yeah, it's the gift and the curse. It's like uh, all this, all the top spies and whatever get to read your work, and then no one can talk about it or no one can see it ever. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, it's wild. And, and, I, and I would say, yeah, and the, and the letter writing campaign, which he described to me, which is really important, is that he um, got – um, or the CIA got had influential Italian Americans like figures in the church or people who ran um, Italian American newspapers to urge their followers to mail letters back home to friends and relatives telling them to vote against the communist side. 
And so what ended up, this initiative took on a life of its own, and more than 10 million messages were sent back to Italy urging Italians not to vote for the communists. And that mattered because the, the gold standard always for covert electoral interference when it comes to influencing people is reaching people based on who they are, what their interests are, and, 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 and what their personal political preferences might be. And because these people were sent letters by people they knew and people they loved, they were able to be targeted in that sort of precise way. That was very difficult to do in the pre-digital era. It was in many ways unique to Italy, but it did foreshadow what social media would enable in the fact that now any interfering actor can target people based on who they are, what they believe, where they live, what political party they might they might be a part of because everyone makes that information freely available online and have uploaded their psyches into the digital domain. However, back in 1948, the CIA had to use, you know, physical letters and, and real relationships to achieve that same idea. And it's it, I mean, it's probably worth a lot more if your relative is sending you a note as opposed to just a random Twitter bot account. You know, it, it, I, that that is that is a form of influence that is. I think probably on the scale of effectiveness, pretty high uh, among among the methods, you know. Totally. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting in that chapter how they talk about the Marshall Plan being leveraged. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I so and that wasn't covert, um, but it was still interesting in that the Marshall Plan being the massive recovery program that the United States passed under the Truman administration for Western Europe which um, was going to go to Italy after the Italian election because the Marshall Plan had just been passed right before the vote. But George Marshall was urged by the U.S. ambassador in Italy and others to say publicly that if the Italians were to elect a communist government, then the Italy would not receive Marshall Plan aid. And this happened at a time when Italy was under enormous economic duress. Um, its economy was collapsing. Um, and its need for, for aid was rather dire. And, and George Marshall, you know, at, at Berkeley actually gave a speech a few weeks before the election, in which he proclaimed, you know, if the Italians vote um, in a communist party or in a, a leftist government, then they will have effectively removed themselves from this aid program. And, and that message reverberated across the country. It was visible. It was attributable. People knew that it was George Marshall who said it. And leftist newspapers alleged that he was interfering in the election. But but it still did have the perhaps affect of, of communicating to voters that if you did vote for one side, you would therefore be relinquishing support from one of the two superpowers of the day. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, I also wanted to talk about I think uh, the next chapter was it about Germany. So, yeah, that, Germany. Yeah, and, yes. Yeah, that, yeah. I did not know that uh, either. I, I totally missed that episode as well. If you could just talk a little bit about that. That was fascinating. Yeah, well, that's not not your fault. I um, I um, discovered that operation. Um, so I was reporting for The New York Times in Germany when I was able to interview a former Stasi officer, which was the East German Intelligence Service. And he told me about a covert operation that he helped execute in West Germany in 1972, and I spent about a year piecing that story together. And what it is, is is rather a spectacular story where in 1972, the government of Willy Brandt, the chancellor of West Germany, was about to be about to collapse through a vote of no confidence that was being held in the Bundestag, the West German parliament against him. And the Soviet government, the East German government wanted Willy Brandt to stay in power. 
for for various reasons related to policy. So they decided to launch an operation to interfere in the vote of no confidence. They had targeted two easily corruptible lawmakers who were womanizers, debtors, gamblers. They they drew those lawmakers in and they ended up bribing those lawmakers after targeting them to to abstain from the vote, even though they were conservatives and were supposed to vote against Brandt. And when the ballots were actually were actually counted, Brandt survived the vote by only a margin of two votes. So so this intervention saved his government and redirected the history not only of West Germany, but really of, of the Cold War through a covert operation to interfere in an electoral process. There was an investigation into this operation thereafter, I mean, into the vote of no confidence thereafter, because the West German government suspected there might have been foul play. But that investigation came up short. They didn't find the, the Stasi's hidden hand. And, and there are many lessons to draw from this operation, one of which is that they really can matter. They really can be decisive. They really can alter the trajectory of nations. The second is that we should be humble in, in, in thinking about what we do and don't know, whether with regards to 1972 in Germany or with regards to America in 2016. It can take decades for the full scope of covert operations to come out. And the only people who know their full scope in real time are the countries executing them. And the third and final lesson that's important to draw from this is the is the is the is the power of targeting. Because, again, the East German intelligence service targeted two very specific voters based on, again, who they were and, and, and what their vulnerabilities were. And in doing so, we're able to corrupt and turn them in, in an extremely effective and covert way. Yeah. And I think a reoccurring theme in your book uh, and in life, which is why it's in your book, but uh, it's just these operations exploit existing fissures in the situation. They don't necessarily create them. They just exacerbate them. And that just seems like it's a recurring theme in, in many of these stories. Do you agree? Sure. And I think that's especially the tradition of Soviet intelligence. You know, I spent about four hours um, interviewing a former KGB general in his living room. And he was in the KGB for about four decades. And he told me, you know, what we did, we didn't, it was not create vulnerabilities, we exploited the vulnerabilities. For example, the diversity and racial tensions that were a part of American society were, were so easily, he said, exploited in order to sow division and sow dysfunction inside America in, in, inside America's electorate. That's exactly what Vladimir Putin's doing today when he spreads propaganda designed to sow racial discord, to divide Americans from one another, and to advantage one candidate over another. This is a long-running Soviet and now Russian tradition, which is why, in order to defend ourselves against these sorts of operations, something that I really emphasize is that we need to actually build a, a more well-functioning democracy in which we address so many of our glaring vulnerabilities, fissures, and 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 vulner and 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 um, tensions. Because so long as those exist and are so glaring as they are now, perhaps more than they've been in, in a generation or, or, or longer, it's open season for foreign actors who are seeking to, to manipulate our political processes. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned democracy, and that is one way that, uh, well, I don't know if you want to say interfered, but I mean, I guess, it, like you say, it's if if your goal is to be non-democratic, then democracy seems like a threat, basically. Um, and we promote these uh, democracy NGOs and organizations around the world, and we'll publicly say things and do things to promote. Well, it will be it will be spoken as a general uh, value, but it'll be 
it'll it'll be taken as an attack because of the, the situation <laughs> that it that it is received in i guess so um could you talk a little bit about i mean these these are not really like is it interference if you're doing it in public and and above board too i mean sure i mean well i draw a distinction there so what i study is covert electoral interference operations and to be interference that means you're deploying active measures that means you're interfering in the affairs of another country you're not just watching you're acting to be electoral it means you're targeting a democratic vote of succession a vote that determines another country's leader and critically in third it is covert and to be covert it means that it's unattributable that if you endorse, for example, a candidate in another country or a cause as Barack Obama did with the Remain campaign in the United Kingdom, that's visible. Everyone sees that Barack Obama did that and therefore that does not qualify as covert. Whereas if you steal and release emails through a third party, so the effect is public, but you don't actually see who is doing the stealing as Russia did in 16 against us, then that is covert. So in terms of whether overt action is, is can be viewed as interference, I think of course, that if you are overtly engaging in the politics of another nation, you're influencing the politics of that nation. I do not think that that is at all equivalent to covert action, because the difference being that covert action seeks to hide the hand of foreigners. It seeks to mislead and manipulate. It is unknown to the citizens of a democracy who are seeking to make independent choices about who they want to elect and who they want to steward the future of their nation. So if, if you're visible and if you're above board about that, I think that, that I think we can have a conversation about the merits of doing so and in what cases and, 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 and when and, and, and where. But I, I think to group, as often at least many Russian commentators seek to do, overt democracy promotion with covert electoral operations is like comparing, um, you know, apples and oranges in some ways. And that's not to say that America is always right. America has engaged, as I said, and as we've discussed, in covert electoral interference. And I think it's a much riper comparison and more precise comparison to say, OK, how do we stack up those CIA operations against KGB and Russian operations. But no, I think overt democracy promotion is very different. And the goal for the most part is just to allow countries to hold stable, fair um, elections. And sometimes those organizations show bias and we should be clear eyed about that, but it's it's sort of a different ballgame. Um, kind of going backwards a little bit in your book, uh, I did think it was interesting that the Communist Party of America was funded by Russia, but not in a way where they thought, like, I don't think anybody expected them to win. They just were like, you'll just exist as a thorn in the side and you'll just, you'll be present and people will know. And, uh, you, you know, even in America, look, there's, there's communists, you know, uh, it's, it's more a rhetorical tool they can, they can use. Uh, it, it's just interesting how these, uh, they don't play to win always. It's just sow the seeds of discord or, you know, uh, just throw enough, uh, of, dust in the air you know what i mean like it's not about the the overt wearing it's more of a long game i guess <laughs> so, yeah uh, yeah no i think i yeah. think that's something that is really difficult for many americans to to understand and it took me a long time to fully understand that the that the soviet and russian objective has always been in part to degrade american democracy for the soviets that have the benefit of weakening the internal functioning of the superpower and to show the world that the democratic model was flawed and unenviable. And that is in part why they funded the U.S. Communist Party, just to sow discord and sow distrust in American society and to say to their citizens, see, America has communists too. Communism is an attractive ideology. 
Vladimir Putin has continued that tradition. He is still seeking to sow chaos and dysfunction in America. But if anything, he's more ambitious because what he's seeking to do is to transform the American system. He knows that the way democracies collapse are, for the most part, is corrupted versions of themselves. And he is seeking to sow as much division and dysfunction as possible to undermine the sanctity of our processes of succession to the point where our democracy starts to look less and less like the American democracy that many of us are familiar with and more to resemble the Russian model, um, which is a slow moving process and is very difficult to identify at any precise moment. But it has to do with the degradation of norms, of, of democratic procedures, of democratic values, where suddenly the country that you had is no longer the country that you have. Oof. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to talk about Boris Yeltsin. Talk a little bit about uh, the promise of Yeltsin or, you know, because he was the first, you know, you said he was like cheered in Congress. And that was like, wow, a Russian leader cheered in Congress. Imagine that. And then it's Putin and, you know, he's Mr. KGB and it's like make Russia great again. So, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, transition uh, if you could talk about that a little bit. Totally. Yeah, I think Yeltsin came to power at a moment of of great hope in the United States that Russia would perhaps develop toward an open market democratic system. I think that there was a pivot in American foreign policy from containing communism as the end above all toward just expanding democracy, which is part of why the United States started focusing, as you said, on over democracy promotion more forcefully. And in Russia, Boris Yeltsin ended up being both a flawed leader inside Russia in terms of the in terms of the rather hollow democracy he developed and also immensely reliant on the United States and Western powers for aid, for support and for legitimacy. Um, and you saw that play out most acutely in the 1996 election when Russia, um, when Boris Yeltsin was leaning on Bill Clinton to provide him with support to help him get reelected. The transition to power that happens when Putin takes office is interesting in part because no one really knew what to expect. I interviewed Bill Clinton for the book, and what he told me is, you know, I, 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 I thought he was smart. I thought he was a straight talker, but I also thought that he didn't seem to care much about democracy or about the project that Clinton and Yeltsin had been trying to pursue. And I think in the ensuing 20 years, I mean, it's a question that's unanswerable. How much of Putin was Putin then? How much of Putin's behavior has been shaped by events since? But he has certainly taken Russia on a much more adversarial direction than what Yeltsin had pursued at the time. And again, it, it would be very interesting to get in Putin's head as to how he perceives the Yeltsin years. But I do know, for example, one of his closest advisors, Vladislav Surkov, has described the 90s as the ruinous 1990s, which which I believe mm. in, you know, the humiliating 1990s when when Russia was seeking to join the American led world order, perhaps rather than creating its own path and its own world order. Mm hmm. Yeah, there was the whole end of history thing, and it's like, well, <laughs> you know, let's dust off our hands. That's over. <laughs> you know, yeah. The, the threats, the threats done. Thank goodness. Um, yeah, I think there was a lot of wishful thinking back then about a lot of things. Uh, you know, it's 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 you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I can I can sit here and pick apart people's decisions all day, but you know, as a journalist, I was very impressed with the interviews you scored for this book. So good gets uh, all around. There were some frustrating ones, I'm sure, that you didn't get. Uh, I'm sure Henry Kissinger and uh, John Kerry and uh, Mitch McConnell and a couple others, I'm sure, would have been good. But you interviewed both Clintons. 
that's not bad. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that was definitely that was definitely a good get. Yeah, no, I yeah. it was really an adventure. I ended up, I mean, starting off just for my PhD work, and it kind of just took on a life of its own. And I ended up interviewing more than 130 people um, across six countries, including 26 former advisors to President Obama, folks like Steve Bannon, H.R. McMaster, John Brennan, Jim Clapper, and like you said, both Clintons. And it was it was it was a journey in terms of collecting all of these perspectives and using them to help me recreate this history that can't just be recreated with documents because so much of it has to do with personalities, with decisions that were made behind closed doors and aren't even a part of any records that are accessible to the public. So it was a real fact finding mission. And I, I was very lucky that so many people were willing to talk with me so openly, especially by the uh, way, former CIA yep. directors, which was which was part of the most interesting part of this talking to eight former leaders of the agency, as well as the KGB general, because you know, their, their, their perspectives on this are, are maybe, you know, the leading ones in, inside the U.S. government or among its former officials. Yeah, well, you, that's got to be an interesting interview, you know, because you know they know so much and they have to be so careful about what they say, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Um, yeah, but... Um, Yes. So we're, we're finally to the 2016 part of your book. And uh, this is I obviously this is this is kind of the payoff of the story here, because this is why it's relevant to now. And, uh, you know, I gosh, where to begin? Um, Obama, Obama, um, you know, like I said, hindsight is 2020. It's easier for me to pick apart decisions. I feel like one of his main flaws as a leader was that he always ex- he was he felt he was there to set it on it seems like a set a good example for Mitch McConnell and and the the other side and they just never he extended his hand again, time and again and it was never never reciprocated and that you know that's politics you know that's that's not here nor there for the most part but this is election security and this is the national security and this is like trusting that our leaders are elected fairly and, you know, you talk about the joint statement that was watered down. Mitch McConnell wouldn't sign it. He was in the process of blocking Merrick Garland so he couldn't be seen with him and making the blah, blah, blah. It, you know, I, I don't want to say feckless. That's too harsh. I, I want to say milk toast, not not meeting the moment with the with the fervor, maybe in retrospect, it, it deserved. And I know, like, again, like, it's easy for me. I wasn't in the, you know, you the, room, where, the room where it happened or whatever, as John Bolton would say. <laughs> uh, but Are you saying it was Obama or McConnell who, who, who didn't meet the moment? Um, I, I mean, Obama, I mean, I never expected McConnell to meet the moment. Okay. I never, I never thought that would happen, but like Obama had the responsibility as the leader of the country, I feel to, to maybe be, be more forceful than he was or put the letter out, uh, without McConnell, you know, sure, uh, I, yeah, no, I, I, I don't know, like, like yeah. you know, just do something more than, than what happened, you know, maybe yeah. it wouldn't have made a difference, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm placing too much significance on that, but. I mean, I don't think you're placing too much significance on the importance of presidential action and defending against these sorts of operations. But I do think we have to be careful and not overweighing the importance of that congressional statement because McConnell did obstruct President Obama's efforts. He did water down that statement, which I believe was a real damage and detriment to the national security of our country. But that was only one part of President Obama's sort of struggle and effort to respond to Russia's operation, which also involved considering whether to label our infrastructure as critical infrastructure, releasing the October 7th statement by Jim Clapper and Jay Johnson, warning Vladimir Putin to sort of stand down um, on the part of interfering in our election. 
And I do think there were actions that President Obama considered but didn't take, which mostly involved hitting Russia, punishing Russia in the summer of 2016 in order to deter further action, which is something that I examine extraordinarily closely in my book as to the debate that went on, why his Russia advisors in particular urged him to hit Russia in the summer of 2016, and why President Obama ultimately decided not to do that, to wait for the most part, as I reveal in the book, because of the widespread exposure of our voting systems, not related to the emails and social media, but the fact that Russian military intelligence, as John Brennan told me, had the ability to alter the voter data and even the vote tallies of US citizens. And Barack Obama was extremely hesitant to risk provoking Putin into proceeding to tamper with the actual voting process. And that was a calculation that dominated White House decision making in the summer and fall of 16. And I think is extremely important for Americans to understand now because we're vulnerable in two lanes. We're vulnerable in the lane of Russia seeking to manipulate people across social media and with hacked emails in 16, but those tactics will keep evolving. But the idea is to mold minds. But we're also vulnerable in the sense of our infrastructure based on 16 when our systems were so widely penetrated. Yeah. So, okay, go go into that a little bit further because, okay, so what is the consensus at this point? Uh, okay, so they had access to the voter records. Could they and they could have changed them, but but we don't think they did. What what is the best that we know about that? So what I know is, you know, like I said, based on the interviews that I did with 26 of President Obama's senior advisors, is that starting in the summer. There were reports of Russia's scans, scanning, probing and penetrating um, our election systems. What Jay Johnson, the Homeland Security Secretary, said to me is if you could scan it, if you could probe it, you could alter it. What John Brennan told me is that Russia could have gone further. They could have altered tallies. They could have altered voter registration data. What Amy Pope, the deputy Homeland Security Advisor, told me was that on Election Day itself, the White House was bracing and considered it very possible that Russia would would seek to manipulate the voting record and, and, and voter databases. And this wasn't just these aren't just hindsight arguments, because what I also reveal in the book is that on Election Day, the White House and the Department of Homeland Security were both running secret crisis teams bracing for a Russian cyber attack against our election systems. And that attack never manifested itself. The what in terms of your question as to whether results were manipulated, there is no evidence that Russia actually used its access to manipulate anything. Um, Susan Rice, Dennis McDonough, Jim Clapper all told me they saw no evidence um, that that Russia manipulated the actual vote. Um, although Harry Reid told me that despite that lack of evidence, he's convinced that Russia did, in fact, manipulate the vote tally. But perhaps more generally, while it's very important to understand our vulnerabilities in this space, what's equally important is not to let this space dominate this conversation, not our conversation, but the conversation around election interference. Because while the Obama administration was captivated by the notion that Russia might seek to manipulate the vote, Russian actors were very aggressively manipulating tens of millions of Americans across social media and stealing and releasing emails that that reached the American electorate at scale in order to mold minds to sow discord and to support Donald Trump. So we need to address both avenues here and recognize just how vulnerable we are in both before we're able to make meaningful progress in addressing this this rather you know, extraordinarily important threat when you think about what really matters to preserve the functioning of a democracy. Harry Reid, the letter that he sent, um, that was, you know, looking in retrospect, that's looking better and better because he was sounding the alarm. 
what did Harry Reid know that people around him didn't know? Because I've read that letter. Uh, he sent it to James Comey, right? Sure. I mean, I think Harry Reid's letter was prescient and it wasn't because I think what Harry Reid's letter foreshadowed was he did warn that Russia might seek to manipulate vote tallies or, or he said that Russia was seeking to influence the election. And that's right. And people knew that John Brennan briefed um, the gang of eight, they congressionally, the four congressional leaders and the, and the head of, of the intelligence committees um, in August and September. Barack Obama was aware of what Russia was doing. The, the Obama administration knew about Russia's operation in broad strokes. I mean, they knew mostly about the electoral intrusions and about the stolen emails, much less so about social media. What Harry Reid was doing wasn't based on anything he knew that others didn't, it was that he was seeking to draw public attention to Russia's operation, whereas the executive branch was seeking to lessen attention being paid to Russia's operation at the time, or at least to keep it more closely held. And I think the thing that Reid's letter seems to have gotten off, at least for the time being, based on the available evidence, is that Russia didn't manipulate vote tallies. There's no evidence to suggest that they did. But that was what was captivating Reid. That was what captivated President Obama and his team. Whereas what ended up being the real threat, the thing we talk about now, was Russia's efforts to manipulate voters. And that was not responded to. Uh, Russia was not punished for doing that until after the election. And I think it's very important that moving forward, we don't fall for the temptation of reducing the threat of Russian interference to just the vulnerabilities of our infrastructure, because that's only a, a, a part, that's the bare minimum. If Russia's altering our vote tallies directly, then our democracy just isn't, isn't even a, a democracy in the, in the most basic sense. But every other part of that problem has to do with securing our information space. And what the history of this reveals from Italy to now is that the his, that covert electoral interference, the tradition of this is to manipulate people. And, and we need to make significant progress in making ourselves less vulnerable to manipulation, both through tactics like the hacking and dumping of sensitive documents and through the spreading of propaganda across channels like Facebook and Twitter. Oh, but there's a lot I want to talk about there. But as a journalist, do you think that other journalists should report on things like Guccifer and... Uh, you know, WikiLeaks and stuff like that. Sure. I mean, moving forward, my, my, my argument is not that those documents should just be ignored. I don't think that's realistic nor responsible. I think that if these things are released, they, they should be looked at by journalists. That's not the issue. To me, the issue is that in 2016, when those documents were released, so much attention was paid to the contents of the emails, the you know gossipy tidbits or sensationalist moments that they revealed. So little attention was paid to the underlying source of those emails, who released them and why. The Russia storyline at the time was sort of dismissed by many journalists. And so readers were given this information. They were told that information was released by WikiLeaks and they weren't really looped in on, 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 on understanding who wanted them to see these uh, these emails and why. And, 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 and that is not inevitable. In France, um, Russian linked hackers stole and released mm -hmm. the email of Emmanuel Macron in 2017 when he was running for president or of his campaign. They released them and the French media, the, the French political class and the French citizenry more or less said together, you know, we just saw America fall for this trick and we're not going to fall for it ourselves. And the emails received almost no attention. So so there's a degree of gullibility here that I think we need to sort of get at. 
And I think the government can help by more speedily attributing who's behind these sorts of document dumps. And I think journalists can help by paying a bit more attention to the source of these document releases and a bit less attention to those gossipy tidbits about, you know, who dissed who, which which might get clicks, but isn't actually of relevance in, in the traditional news sense. Right, right. OK, I remembered what I was going to say about Bernie Sanders, that what you said reminded me. Um, so you talk about how Russia supported his candidacy, but uh, are you're not are you you're not saying that he welcomed that or was was co- somehow complicit in that because I, I feel like that like like we were talking about I feel like that was just a way he get to Hillary Clinton is to support uh, Bernie Sanders because uh, sure. I, I didn't see him being like uh, you know Russia if you're listening exactly or there's not a Bernie Sanders tower going in Moscow or whatever you know? yeah no I mean I think I think there are two things to say there one is, I mean, my point about Russia supporting Bernie, I mean, that's, I think, uh, maybe a sentence or two. And that was just about the very strictest sense of the social media angle of Russia's operation, spreading content that was both pro-Trump and pro-Bernie. But the election system stuff had no nothing to do with Bernie. The stolen emails, that was all to hurt Hillary Clinton. So, But still, even then, that small slice of supporting Bernie, um, that was about as you said, A, hurting Hillary Clinton, you know, something that became very apparent in my research is that Russia had a real, or Putin has a real animus toward her. It's not just fodder, it's genuine. Um, and he, he started this operation in 2014 before Donald Trump even announced his candidacy in large part to hurt her. And as I reveal in the book, he had plans to continue undermining her presidency, as Jim Clapper and John Brennan told me, had she won the election. So A, it was just, to, as you said, hurt her. And B, it was because Donald but because Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are both and this is not an equivalency between them, but they are both disruptive, you know, it, rather divisive political figures. And what you see globally is Russia supporting candidates on the far left and on the far right who Russia believes will sow chaos within their democracies and polarize their democracies. And there's no way around it that in looking at Bernie, Bernie, Bernie is a polarizing figure. So I think it wasn't surprising at all that Russia sought to spread content that was pro-Bernie for those two reasons, um, both to hurt Hillary Clinton and to sow division within the United States. But I also don't think we should overstate at all that or, or, or suggest that Russia supported Bernie in the same way that Russia supported Donald Trump. Russia's efforts to support Donald Trump were much more substantial um, than, than those to support Bernie. And as you said, Donald Trump also welcomed um, at least the email prong of this operation, whereas um, Bernie has never done anything of the sort. And in 2020, commendably, during the Democratic primary, um, said that, you know, Russia better stay away from engaging in our politics and interfering in our electoral processes, which is something that I wish Donald Trump would do. So uh, as you were describing Putin in the book, um, I kept thinking about Donald Trump. Like it's like the he he makes these remarks and it's like it's 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 an insult, but it's couched as a, you know, a compliment. You know what I mean? It's 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 all these uh, it's these ways of talking. And uh, it's the world is a zero. It's a zero sum game. Uh, I win. You lose. You lose. I win. It's it's we can't all win. Someone else has to lose if I win. Uh, how much of, you know, maybe this is speculation or maybe I just haven't got to this part of your book yet, but um, <laughs> how much of tr- Trump and Putin's relationship is 
they're just kind of the similar figures or is there something to the whole maybe he has something on him financial or otherwise uh i don't know what what's your feeling about that I mean, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable speculating. Um, I, I think that the one sort of new data point I got on that question is the uh, the former KGB general who was serving in Moscow in 1987, who told me that he heard from his colleagues that when Trump visited the Soviet Union in 1987, um, he was spied upon and that, you know, the Russians know something about him is the way that the KGB general referenced it to me, but he had no evidence to support his claims other than his memory. In in general, I would say that there are two things I think that are important to keep in mind with the Trump-Putin relationship. The first being that there are public indications that Trump and Putin, that Trump and Russia have a long business history. That's been openly reported up to the letter of intent signed around uh, Trump Tower in Moscow during the presidential mm-hmm. campaign. Everyone knows about that. That is now a part of the public record. Um, the second thing is that I think it's very important to understand why Putin likes Trump, um, because I think there's a misconception that it has everything to do with, you know, maybe that Trump would lift sanctions related to Ukraine and might pull away from NATO. And and those things are certainly nice for Russia. And Russia appreciates that, even though Trump hasn't hasn't actually done those things in, in the way that I imagine Russia would like him too. But that's not why Putin, in my opinion, really likes candidates like Trump. Putin likes Trump because Trump is a chaotic, divisive, disruptive figure who promotes dysfunction in America's political system, who sows division between Americans, who defies democratic norms and standards. And for someone like Putin, whose long game, as you put it, um, is to degrade American democracy and ultimately to tear down the democratic system, both of America and its peer democracies, Someone like Donald Trump holds extremely unique appeal, especially in the American political um, environment where there's never been a major party presidential nominee, let alone a president, who has had the tendencies that Donald Trump has. So from the perspective of a Russian leader like Vladimir Putin, again, who's seeking to undermine democratic systems, Donald Trump is very appealing in ways that have nothing to do with Ukraine or with NATO and everything to do with how he actually governs inside the United States. Because what have Soviet and Russian leaders been seeking to do for generations to sow racial discord in America, to Mm -hmm. undermine American democracy, to show the world that American democracy doesn't really work, and to show that America is just filled with hate and anger and distrust and and, and paranoia. And and all of those objectives, Donald Trump is is advancing without Russia doing anything, just because of who he is. So so I think that's important to keep in mind, because I do think it's, it's dangerous to just say Russia likes Trump because Trump will you know, pull troops out of Germany. That, that's that's a small part of it, but but it's not the whole picture. And I think it's important to see that whole picture to really understand what Russia's after. Well, they're after adoptions, uh, at least according to Don Jr. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, how much complicity do you think Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg have in all this? Um, I, I think the, the question for me is... I don't fault them um, or I I don't think I mean, what do I do in my book? What I do in my book is I seek to show what social media offers foreign actors um, in terms of the ability to target unsuspecting minds, the ability to spread propaganda in an extremely inexpensive and far reaching way. And I think we need to have clear eyes. And I think Dorsey and Zuckerberg need to have clear eyes 
about the opportunity their platforms offer foreign actors who are seeking to penetrate and overtake political debates in other countries. I think moving forward, it's not just on them. I think they need to do their own initiatives and take their own steps, as in some cases, Twitter more than Facebook they have, in seeking to... I mean, I wouldn't even make that comparison. I think both companies have taken some steps to to get foreign actors out of their out of their platforms in terms of covert networks designed to manipulate people with fake identities. But I think a lot more can be done. I also think that the U.S. government has failed to actually enact any regulations of these platforms in that the Congress has passed nothing related to social media since 2016. And I also think that citizens themselves need to put it upon themselves to be more discerning in terms of examining the content they see on social media and not treating, you know, news they see on their Twitter feed as the equivalent of news they might see in a reputable newspaper. So I think every actor has a stake here. I, I, I think that the technology companies can do a lot more to get their platforms under control and to recognize the severity of this problem. But I also think that there are other other aspects of our society, again, like the citizenry and like the federal government that can step up too. And you have seen some progress. There has been substantial private public cooperation between entities like the USIC, intelligence community and Facebook in seeking to identify and take down foreign networks, as I outline in the book. But again, more can be done and this will be a continuous very difficult struggle because the nature of a democracy is to have an open political debate. Social media platforms provide for that debate, but open debates are penetrable. They always have been. So so this is something that is a feature rather than a bug of our democracy. And we just need to figure out how to manage it, how to promote awareness around it and how to mitigate it as well as we can. If it can be organized, it can be infiltrated, as I once heard it said. I was really, uh, you talk about the Internet Research Agency and uh, one of the things they did was they would organize events from, you know, Moldova or wherever this like uh, hackers are sitting, and people would actually physical physically show up. Uh, people would would go in the streets, and there'd be counter demonstrations, and this was all being, uh, you know, orchestrated from from overseas. And that, you know, going back to the Italian thing, you couldn't write your Italian grandma a letter and say, hey, there's going to be a demonstration in the park. You should go there. <laughs> like that that would take a lot more. But uh, you have these like uh, I forget what Facebook groups there were that were that were actually from Russia that were like uh, the the Tennessee Party of uh, Independence or whatever. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> We love in Tennessee, <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it's just a whole new world. And I, I just I feel like these platforms need to take a little more responsibility. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, you, you see about these farms where people have to watch all the horrible stuff people post on Facebook and they're suffering from P, like PTSD because they have to like, uh, you know, every time somebody reports something on Facebook, somebody has to, a real person has to watch it now. And. I, is that, I don't know if that's better. It's, it's kind of, it's, I don't know what the answer is, but it seems like they need to take some responsibility for what they're doing. And I'm not sure what the best way to go about that is exactly. So, you know, I agree with that. And I also think the public needs to be aware of the problem because I think that a lot of what our debate around these companies has to do with is advertisements and that's important, mm. but we also need to recognize that the internet research agency's operation was only a small part of it had to do with ads. What what the IRA did was post huge amounts of organic content across various platforms, across thousands of accounts, in order to generate organic activity, real followings, then they could then use to disseminate their content more widely. 
and to manipulate Americans. So so this wasn't just about ads. This was about the complete penetration and hijacking of these information platforms. And, and that's a problem that that these companies really do need to tackle, because if you're an American on Facebook and you see another account that appears to belong to an American or a page that appears to be by an American, but really it's by a Russian troll sitting in St. Petersburg, but you have no way of knowing that, that's a real problem because you don't actually know with whom you're engaging in political debate and 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 that other countries are seeking to manipulate you to, to advance their own ends and their own interests, which aren't in alignment with America's interests. Yeah, so, uh, so what do we do? For 2020 election, man, it's coming right up. Yeah, <laughs> we no, got I mean, to do I something. Think, <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that 2020 is is a real challenge, um, unfortunately, because a lot really does rely on presidential leadership here, and Donald Trump is someone oh, who not no. only has <laughs> what I said. Oh no, <laughs> yeah, no, Donald Trump is not only someone who has um. Um, who has solicited rather than sought to deter foreign interference in our democracy. He's also told his followers that this threat doesn't even exist, which is so harmful because it creates the perception that you this is a the election he won was rigged. <laughs> no, I know, but he tells people, he says, he says Russia didn't really interfere. It's a lie. And, oh. and it's against him. But the problem with that is that it again creates the notion that this is you know, about Donald Trump when it just isn't. You know, the Soviet Union interfered in American elections to hurt Republican candidates like Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Now Russia thinks it's in its interest to, to help a Republican, but what Russia's trying to do is to help Russia. And Americans need to recognize that and be on guard for it. And I think for the 2020 election, what Americans need to do is just watch out for efforts to manipulate their minds, watch out for efforts to manipulate or disrupt the actual voting process, hold Donald Trump accountable if he does seek to invite further interference in our democracy and just be engaged citizens who are who are willing to turn out and show up when it comes to, to voting and caring, um, because so much of these operations rely on manipulating people. And if people are engaged and if people are well informed, that becomes a lot more difficult to do. And I do think that when there's another president, whether that's Donald Trump or I mean, whether that's a Republican or a Democrat, as I outline in the conclusion of my book, there are much more meaty policy steps that can and should be taken to renew and defend our democracy at home and abroad. But in terms of your question is before November, I think this is about managing this threat and being on guard for it and, 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 and bracing for, for these eventualities so that we aren't so caught off guard by them as we were four years ago. Uh, well, uh, it's interesting that we live in such an interconnected time because the goal of the people who seek to, to disrupt things is to, to break every country up and, and have it be uh, nation versus nation and, and no international cooperation. It's it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's, I don't know, it's anyway, interesting time to be alive. So um, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, this book. Uh, all will have finished it by the time this is out. Um, but uh, one question I ask before we go every time is, what music have you been listening to lately? What music have I been listening to lately? I was listening to Florence and the Machines um, earlier today. Okay. Yeah, the, song, the song Seven Devils. I, I, it's a pretty catchy song. It's a little, a little. It's not exactly an upper, but but I don't know. I, I heard it on a on a on a trailer actually, and I thought it was a good song, so I figured out what it was called and downloaded it. And and yeah, it's a catchy tune. I'd recommend it. Very cool. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, everyone go read his book. Uh, I, we we got to do something. So, so read this and get inspired and <laughs> let me know what you all do. Um, uh, thank you again. I uh, hope you have a good night. <laughs> thank you very, very much for having me. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com.
You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.